This is the first episode I've done where we talk about retail strategy, but there's a strong undercurrent of brand communication strategy throughout. And there's a lot of different facets to building community around your brand, having meaningful conversations with your customers, and integrating your products, service, or brand into their lives. There's literally something here for any company looking to improve any of those aspects. My guest is Alex Barsagan, author of Local Motion, a book that details how brands, both large and small, can build a real relationship with their customers to turn them from one-time buyers into lifelong loyalists. And if you want to get a little freaked out about how you're being tracked, be sure to listen all the way through to hear what can be done with loyalty programs and how major global brands and small mom and pops can all track basically everything you see, do, and want. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Alex, welcome to The Build Cycle. Thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, man. So you've written a book called Local Motion, and it's it's funny because like a lot of my questions for come coming out of this are sort of drilling down to the local, but you're actually coming at this concept from a, a monstrous $3.5 billion company that does you know gift cards and sort of gift card programs across the world, and what you've learned from that, just to kind of recap, in my mind, is that the more you can tailor the offerings to the local market, the better you do. Is is that correct? And anything you'd add to that? No, that's exactly, and, and that's exactly. You got you went right to the heart of it, and and it's it's you do it based on the individual um, tastes and and preferences, but you also do it to that community type of offering, and the way you go about it is by enabling it with technology and understanding the, the community and understanding what the customers in that local geography want. Awesome. And you break this down. I, w- I want to give people kind of a taste of what's to come here. So the way you explain it is we have three phases. You start off with companies that are big and broad general interest, you know, like McDonald's. Then you get into specialty, which, you know, I don't know, probably a poor example, but maybe like five guys, right? It's a little more. And then you get down to hyper local, which could be, you know, your local burger joint that makes way better burgers. Um, Not using burgers. Can you give kind of a better example of those three phases of, or or three types of brand that's out there now? Yeah, I I would, I would think of, you know, the coffee, like everybody drinks burgers, actually a good example because of what's, you know, the, the rise of the burger. You could do the same thing with, with beer, actually, with, you know, the rise of the craft brewers. But I think coffee to me is a, is a perfect example. So, so, you know, for, for so long, um, you know, the first eight phase of a business is familiarity and getting people engaged in something. So think of coffee as the, you know, instant coffee, the, the Maxwell house and the Folgers. And that's what, you know, that drip type of coffee was how people got introduced and marketed to for a long period of time. And I, they never thought the incumbents being Maxwell House that companies like Starbucks would come in that people would pay, you know, four or five dollars for a handcrafted coffee. But I'm, sure I'm enough, I'm still kind of surprised I pay four to five dollars for a coffee sometimes. But <laughs> anyway, just don't do it every just don't do it every day. Right. <laughs> and and then and then so all of a sudden Starbucks come in that comes into the fold and smacks them basically. Um, with a multi, uh, you know, multi-tiered approach of, you know, they've got a rewards program. Not every Starbucks is exactly the same, but it feels the same, but it, it has a little bit of a different um, architecture and environment depending on where you are. And, you know, they sell their products in grocery stores now. So, it's, you know, they, they sell it in, in machines. They can actually brew your own coffee with. So Starbucks really 
the phase two of a coffee generation. And then phase three is the, the is the lock, you know, this now, this local coffee shop chains that are maybe not so local that, you know, you'll have five, 20, 25 locations of a really strong coffee chain in your city, which is now a phase three. The way Starbucks is combating that, and I love Starbucks, uh, not just because of the coffee, but because they're, they haven't sat on their laurels. Um, this new Starbucks reserve, which has got its own coffee bar and it's got a whole bunch of different coffee types is trying to answer that this phase three approach, but really businesses go from a phase one, which is introdu- introductory, getting people used to it. And the real shift happens on a phase two of if you still think of your business as phase one, you're going to become obsolete very quick. And this phase two is what Starbucks has kind of done to the coffee industry or five, you know, five guys has done to the, to the burger industry and so on and so forth. And then the phase three is where really it's the hyper local, but it's a really strong hyper-local um, folks out there. Uh, beer, um, out, you know, for the cyclists out there, I don't know how much carbs you guys drink, but, you know, when you think, when you think about <laughs> beer, who knew that a couple of years ago, you know, that craft beer would sell, outsell Budweiser. Um, and that's a phase two example of something that has really, again, smacked the face of the Bud Lights of the world and, and whatnot. Yeah. And then you get down to the hyper local, like for, you know, I live close to Asheville, North Carolina, and you had Wicked Weed there. That was just awesome. And then, of course, they got bought by, I think, Anheuser-Busch for a lot of money. So it's interesting to see what's happened to that. There was some, of course, backlash to the purchase. But that, the point was that was a hyper local. Like they had that one facility, you know, they had distribution, you know, regionally, but it was a cool thing. It is a cool thing. And you think about the number of like the phase two has been the craft brewers who've gone, ma- you know, mass to a certain extent, but then there's the hyper local. It's the, you know, the, the folks who have the breweries, the microbreweries, and they've got the restaurants in there and they're, they're not about, I want to be, you know, in every single state or province, they want to service that community. And that's much more sticky, much more meaningful. Yeah. And so the trick, I think, and this is what I want to talk about, is for for brands to sort of convey that local aura, I guess. I can't think of the right word, but you know, they want to come across as being local and, and not just play the part. They want to actually be involved in the community at some level to create you know, a customer base that's really excited about what they do. And so what we're going to talk about here is, you know, like how brands can get to that point what some of the tools are because in your your book local motion you you talk a lot about some of the tools and apps and the technology that make this possible for a small brand anywhere in the world to play on a global level to some extent without giving up that that local feel or you know for a big brand to kind of find a way to create a local feel even though maybe they're a global brand so we're going to yeah. start talking about like brands and then we'll move to retail. I want to keep those two separate because you know, I, I think there's, there's a lot of separation in the, the space. Either somebody's creating a product and has a brand or service or they have a retail store. It's, I don't know that there's enough crossover to try and marry the two for this purpose. I want each side of it to get something out of this episode. So let's start with small brands. Uh, how can a small brand create a feeling of local and personal, even when they're across the country or across the world? Yeah. So it's a good question. So there, there's really, I'm not going to talk about technology because that's an enabler. Uh, I'm going to really talk about, you know, how you really have to know your customer and you know, your customer in two ways. One is at the individual level. So um, one of the reasons why the local coffee shop, phase three guys are beating out Starbucks to a certain extent is when you go to your local coffee shop and you go there regularly, they will know who you are. Um, that's a big deal. When you go, when you're a Starbucks, you might have a loyalty program, but the funny thing is they still ask your name, right? If you think you're, so there's a real disconnect on knowing the individual at Starbucks, although they, they do a good job of um, making a feel individualized. You sh- if you have my loyalty program and I walk up, you shouldn't ask my name. Somebody should say, okay, Alex, you know, um, your drink will be 
at the end of the corner versus the phase threes where they really know the individual. So knowing your customer is one big component. The second big component is understanding the community that you, you are addressing. So one, one example is gyms. So it is, you know, in Canada's good life fitness, um, in the U.S., there's a whole bunch of other examples of mass retail chains, big chains that you pay 40 bucks for and you go to a gym and you, you, they've got treadmills, they've got what they want. However, that is completely changing to a community-based type of exercise. I'm not just talking about yoga classes. I'm talking about really community-based where individuals that are like-minded can get together. So SoulCycle, one of the fastest-growing, in my opinion, gym brands out there, um, really does a great job of creating a sense of community with folks that are like-minded. Even, um, you know, it's, it's health is first, but they bring them together in, a, in, a, in an environment of challenging each other, cycling as a sport. So SoulCycle, to me, is the epitome of, of a really good phase two, but a phase two that talks to community. And on the flip side of that, I would say another great um, type of brand is Peloton. They don't have studios. What they do is they bring the studios to your home, but they do it. They do a great job of understanding that bring the community to your home. So both both SoulCycle and Peloton are attacking it the same way as hitting it to the to the community, but they're applying it one in you know storefronts, um, while the other one is bringing it to your house. But what a great way of you know, these two brands becoming, uh, you know, really large and significant, you know, th- that is what they've taken over from and they created a market where the big, you know, what I call the big box um, gyms have kind of missed out on. They, they missed out the sense of community, no, much, no matter how much they've, they've they tried. There is, a, there, is, there is a sense of it's so difficult to be all things to all people that you miss out. So you have to understand your individual so well. You have to understand the communities you service, and you have to endlessly uh, talk to them, talk to them, and be relevant. Because if you don't, somebody else is going to take your spot and do it for you. Yeah, and CrossFit's done a great job of that. Like you know, the local gyms, it's or you know, a box. You go to one, and you kind of like you know. I think people will bounce around from one or two or three to find the one that they fitted. But once you find one that matches kind of your personality, like. The people that are really in the CrossFit, they don't leave that box. They don't jump around like some people skip around the gyms based on, you know, whatever's going on for a sale or something. And those boxes, they really fine-tune the workouts for the people that are coming in, which, um, you know, and I've been to some, and they'll they'll take the classes outside. They'll take the classes to a park sometimes, or if there's like a Ninja Warrior gym, sometimes they'll just meet there instead and do it there to really do something unique and that keeps it fun and interesting and that's something you know the gold's gems of the world certainly can't do no i i agree and there's a, there's a chain from australia i think it's called f45 i can't remember but it's like that's a 45 minute workout but there's like three thousand different combinations of a workout and it what they've done really well is they've married this you know people not everybody can afford a personal trainer but what they've done is kind of done a hybrid in which you have a a personal trainer that applies for a group of a few people and each time you go there it changes um of that 45 minutes what you're actually working on so it feels like you have a personal trainer but at the same time it's a little um it's a little more mainstream so you feel like it's customized but it's it's a really good idea same as crossfit like it's it's um something that it, it's it's surprising when you see incumbents who don't evolve right they, they, they're just, they feel that the world will be the same as it is. And I think that's part of this whole, what I try to demonstrate with local motion in the book is that if, if you maintain what you do uh, today and you don't adapt as quick as you do, you, you will, um, you will be leapfrogged faster than ever in the history of, um, I think the world, because there's, there's so many opportunities for new brands to crop up faster than before. Brands took generations, if not decades to build, but now it's so quick and so fast. Yeah. So let's, uh, the, you know, the gym thing, the coffee shop, those are kind of 
really physically local things. What about for a product? Like I, I use Wolf Tooth components in the bike space a lot. They make, you know, drivetrain upgrade parts, you know, cogs and cassette chain rings and, or chain rings and stuff. What about somebody like them? You know, they're based in the Midwest. They don't have retail outlets, but they, they certainly have community in that a lot of mountain bikers are very familiar with the brand and they're seen as a, a premium item, but also, you know, kind of a cool brand. So what what can a brand like that do that's making a product that's, you know, they're relying on other retail stores to sell the product or online? What can they do to kind of build a, a local feeling or a community? Yeah, so that, that's uh, it's a really good shout out. So um, Peloton is one type of product. I mean, they've done a kind of a good job with, I mean, I talked about it before, but they'll, they'll do storefronts to showcase the product. With with products, there's I think there's two types of products. So there one, uh, well, there's many, but a consumer facing brand is very very difficult because you need to spend uh, quite a bit of money and time to talk to um, and convince individuals of what your brand does on a daily basis, right? The, the second type of product is the ones that are more successful are in this world much more niche, like the the wolf, wolf brand that you're talking about. So it's not the it's not the typical I'm going to open up and go to a trade show anymore. It is really empowering individuals who represent your brand, who could use your brand to be your ambassador. So one of the things that I I had when I launched Samba, it was a really tough thing because when I launched my product, again a virtual product about experiences which millennials love because they talk about them on social media, right? What did you do last weekend? And you know, talking about bungee jumping or skydiving or a great restaurant meal is a great piece of conversation within their community and their friends uh, is very important. But what I did is I I created, as a cheesy name, some ambassadors. So these folks, um, and I did this like 10 years ago, right? So now there's a lot of influencers and folks who they pay a lot of money for. But 10 years ago, there was influencers, but it wasn't as mainstream as it is now. So what I did was I, I focused on verticals. So my product was, I had a few products in the you know, wine and then food and then getaways and health and uh, wellness, uh, so on and so forth. And I would find an ambassador who had a strong community following and have them try out my product and speak about it. Um, and so that, that for me was a very, at the time, a very cost-effective way to to get the brand out. I would say, you know, Lululemon is another great example. I mean, yes, they're a product and they have stores, but when Chip Wilson started this product, he would give his yoga wear for free um, uh, and to specific individuals that he, he found and have them work out at gyms and with Lululemon gear. And so that created buzz um, because at the time people would go and do yoga or Pilates and like sweatpants and loose, you know, loose clothes. And so when he came in with a spandex 2.0, um, people really gravitate towards it. Right. Yeah. Well, that, that makes sense. You know, you're bringing that, you know, national or international brand and product down to the local level by using local ambassadors that understand their market. So that's a, I think that's a good tactic. Obviously it works for a lot of brands and it worked for you. Uh, I get the sense, you know, when you say local, it really, I think, means more personal, right? Like, it doesn't have to be physically local. I think it just has to be sort of, you know, emotionally local to you or, or you know, speak to you on some personal level. Does that sound like kind of bigger picture? It does. Like, I, I think of when Tom Tom's shoes came out, um, what it did, I mean, became a mass popular and people forgot the cause of what it's for. But one of the reasons why it was so successful is it allowed the individual to be connected with somebody who's so far away. So it gave that feeling of you buy a pair of these shoes and somebody far away is getting a pair of shoes for free. And so that, that contribution and that connection um, is very compelling because you buying a pair of shoes can feel that I am personally making an, an impression, lasting impression on somebody who I've, I've probably never met. So yeah, there, this is, it is personalization is a very important part of local. It's not about, you know, one of the things when you have a title like local or experience, it means so many different things to so many people. Local might mean local, you know, hundred mile diet and I need to have my food locally sourced, but it's, 
in fact, the book is really about personalization, both as the individual, but also to the community that I that I'm in, for sure. And and I and I, talk, and I think about one great brand um, that's done this, and you know, it's gone from the phase one to phase two. Is I think of Coke, right? Coke, it's so it's not good for you. We know that, right? And um, you know, sugary drinks, pop drinks are, aren't great, but when they launched their individual uh, naming product, the personalization product, you know, Coke, when you think about it, or any CPG, they've got a real disadvantage. Very few people have the opportunity to go and buy a Mars bar from Mars or a Cadbury bar from Cadbury's or a Coke from Coke. You just, you have to go to a grocery store or, or your convenience store or wherever to buy that product. So there, there is a disconnect um, between between them and, and the consumer. So they, they have to market and advertise and try to be as cool as possible and relevant as possible, which is, is difficult nowadays. And so when Coke launched the personalized campaign that you can put your name on the can, you can you know write messages, it's one of their most successful campaigns they've ever done. And they didn't, they didn't advertise. It was really about personalization and marketing. So, you know, there's stories about people, you know, emptying out a fridge and asking them and spelling out, you know, will you marry me and filling it with Coke cans and things like that. It's just so much more, you know, having Coke as part of your life uh, becomes much more meaningful than just a can of Coke. Uh, you know, you can celebrate your favorite team on there. You can have a picture of the NCAA team on there. So it's what Coke has done on that individual level is a perfect example of a, of a brand that's taken something that's the same around the world, but now tailored it directly with the customer to make it much more personalized. Yeah, it's like Jones Soda did, you know, a couple decades ago. Oh, yeah. You could send in photos uh, and have your own photos on the bottles. Um, yeah, so I think the challenge for any brand and company today then is how do you figure out how to personalize it, which is way too big of a question to fit into this episode. I just want to kind of put that out there to, as a, a thinking point when you walk away from this episode is, you know, think about how can you take, how can you make your product personal, whether it's through, you know, finding local people or whatever. So you mentioned though, that technology is an enabler. So you're going to skip that, but I'd actually like to talk about that because once you figure this out, some kind of strategy you talk a lot about technology in the book, so let's do it. Like, how can you use data to tailor the products and offers to the target customer? You know, what are some easy ways that small brands can get started using technology to accomplish these goals? Yeah, and I, you know, it's one of the um, things that I think about that people forget nowadays and they take it for granted is email, right? Like, you have a database of individuals a person has to really take the time to make sure that an email is personalized. And there's so much soft, so much available software now that could target what they've purchased um, and what they want to buy and just include the name in the email, right? And try to not just send an email to everybody that isn't um, relevant. Amazon man, they're so good, right? They, they do it by what you've seen before and they can email you about, hey, this price has dropped and Expedia has done a good job at getting to that level of, I saw you looked at this hotel, now the price has dropped. But there are tools for the small individual owners, uh, whether it's from Shopify or others, that you can use um, to uh, personalize you know, emails. I mean, it just starts from there. But it's more important than that. I, I would... You know, as a customer, when you're when you're in a small business, um, it's important that even though you're small, the, whether you have five billion customers, five million customers, five thousand customers, the actual what you do in terms of personalizing and segmenting is the same. It's just a matter of scale, right? So if you've got five thousand customers, you should say you should actually take the time say of my five thousand customers. When did they buy something? What did they buy? What was the price point they bought it at? And start grouping them in cohorts. And then this way you could actually start giving them more personalized and tailored offers. It's, a, it's work, but that's what's going to grow your business. The second, you know, the second big thing is I keep on talking about community. It is really 
it's so important, right? Like, you know, Starbucks, again, I keep on using them as an example, but they still have that pinup corkboard of what's going on in your local, uh, you know, local community. Tr- Trader Joe's does a great job of doing that, of, you know, the local mom who um, has, who uh, wants to uh, teach, uh, teach, teach lessons um, for music or a connection on, if you want to learn Spanish, here, here's a, here's a uh, suggestion. So community is very important and you can't forget who your community is. So you can, you can personalize, but then on the broader scale, always talk to your community because if you don't, somebody else is going to, and your community is your tribe. So you, you need to constantly feed them with exciting new things that you're doing, not over marketing to them, but just being who you are real and genuine. And that's what people want. Yeah, well, I think it's like the Kickstarter updates. You know, the ones that leave people with a good feeling at the end are the ones that communicate the progress, keep people informed of what's going on. And then I see like, you know, one of the things we offer on Bike Rumor is for brands to do like a reader survey. So they get to ask readers questions and then we flip it around with another program where people can ask them questions and give feedback. And that, to me, is that's community building right there because... The, you, you're having a conversation, even if it's there's you know like bike rumors, the wall in between it. You know we're the filter for it. There's still a direct back and forth between customer and brand, and that's something that's easy to do with on, on social for sure. Once you've got some kind of following, it's just ask them questions. You know instead of just constantly pumping out marketing speak, you know it's like ask them, say, hey, we're thinking of a new color. Which do you like better, pink or purple? Right. Oh yeah, so I think that that type of collaborative commerce is so important um, in, in this new world. And social media is one aspect on, on doing it, and, and the right social media, depending on the type of businesses you know you're in, Facebook might be more relevant than LinkedIn versus Pinterest. So you know, understanding that, and and the rise of apps, right? Like when who would have thought people would pay a monthly fee um, for for apps when you know a few years ago they were all free. Now people will pay a subscription fee to monitor their health or to get lessons on workouts. I mean, that in itself is a great example of, you know, a technology that's enabled, uh, you know, companies to get con- connected with a community companies that we've never heard of before who, who, who've launched. Um, and, and so that, that's one. The second one is that I, I think that there is going to be a growing sense of intelligence and this is expensive but being part of um the next wave of intelligent type of devices and in the cycling world whether it's you know the your your shoes that you wear are going to be much smart connected to your pedals to your bike shifting that type of that type of evolution that if you're a small independent bike shop owner you should my humble opinion is there's a thought leadership around that there is no voice of um, somebody who can take ownership and, and speak about that and, and tell their audience, their community, what is the best and what's not, what's working, what should we wait for? Because it's a lot of that is being driven by brands who are pushing products out versus the individual users who are talking about it. So I would say if you're an owner of a bike shop or if you're an owner of a, uh, not even a bike shop, a, a manufacturer of parts, I would take the, the opportunity to, to be the voice, the thought leader in in what's up and coming. Because if you're not doing it, you're going to have the big brands doing it. But of course, they're doing it because they want to peddle their own product. So I, I would, I, you know, there's a big opportunity there. Um, I think of, of the local independent parts bike shop owners to, to talk about um, what's coming up. Yeah, well, there's I can give a concrete example of you know just why you were talking. About it. I had this idea. You know, there's a lot of movement toward electronic drivetrain systems, you know, electronic shifting, whether it's wireless or wired and stuff. But all of these now powered components talk to different things. You know, you have, you're, maybe you're wearing a heart rate monitor and you have a power meter and you, it knows where you're shifting. It knows what gear you're in. All of this data is going to a head unit. So there's this massive amount of data now that combines how you're using your bike with what your body's doing. And for a lot of people, myself included, like it's just, I don't even know what to do with all that data. And you know, as far as thought leadership goes, if somebody could just simply say, 
you know, like, hey, upload your thing. We're going to tell you what all that meant. We're going to tell you where you were most efficient, where you were wasting power, how you could have gotten faster and put it into a real simple black and white language. There's I think that's that's a good way somebody could do that. You know, and if a shop did that at the local level, say, hey, bring us, you know, bring us in your Strava profile on your phone and we'll we'll help you interpret it. We'll talk about it, you know, and it's you can very easily charge a small fee for that. And then while you're in the shop, then you're upselling them on nutrition or, you know, better parts to make them faster. Uh, uh, this is awesome. I, I, I love it. Organically, this is a great idea. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, there's just so much out there um, that's relevant, not just to the bike industry, but like there is a lot of data, right? Like you've got, you know, you've, people have a whole mesh system from Google and they've got a nest and they don't even know how this all talks to each other anymore. So, um, I, I think there's a massive opportunity for a local person to help individuals who want to become better, be better, and use what they have, um, and it helps them and make decisions on buying products better and consuming things more. There is, like you said, so like I almost said the S word, but there's a ton of ton of data out there, and I would say 50% of it, I would say more. Um, you know, 70% of the data out there is not being used as effectively as it should be. Um, and but, but part of it is that it's all new, right? So the, these Fitbit sleep apps, it's still new. It's, I mean, it says, okay, you had a great REM sleep today. But what does that really mean? Like, what does that actually do besides telling you that you slept yeah. better why? than usual? How do I repeat yeah, that? Why? Yeah, why? <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, honestly, it's like information for the sake of information is useless unless you can do something with it. And that's where I think the human, the human interaction could be the, the, until AI catches up and tells you automatically that the opportunity here is that the human can be the ambassador for the individual and the community. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to just jump back for a second. You know, you mentioned a lot of the information, speaking of wasted information, you know, there's, there's so much data. If you have a Shopify store or you have a MailChimp email list, like, it's tough when you're a solopreneur or you have a really small team to take advantage of all of that. But I would encourage people to go and find an expert, you know, find a resource, maybe look on Fiverr. I've used Fiverr to find people to help me do some Instagram stuff and it's worked out pretty well. You know, take somebody that can say, look, you've got this email program over here. You've got your Shopify store or you've got your Facebook list. Let's, I'm going to show you how to put all this together or, or find somebody that can put it all together and do, you know, if you're already running ads on Facebook, you should probably figure out how to do the retargeting. And it's again, this is something that's way beyond the scope of this episode, but there's there's a way to make all of these things talk to each other and better integrate them to drive, you know, like use it to engage your community or, or increase your reach. And yeah, there's there's a lot of tools. I just, yeah, I don't even and, know how and, to use and them. So- yeah, no, no, and you know what's interesting is that I think what's shifted is becoming because the technology and software has advanced, and it's not, there's so many niche products, right? An app for literally everything part of your life, and I think the six, you know, the phase three of the world of we're we're going into, in which people thrive in more of a niche type of product. That's that's the expertise that people rely on, and what I would my humble suggestion is to outsource. The, the expertise on things that can help you grow your business so you can focus on your business. So if you're not the best email marketer out there, get, just spend some money um, to, to help you use what you have better. Um, and that goes through all of the touch points you just talked about, whether it's email, whether it's Pinterest, whether it's Facebook ads or whatever you're using, it's, it's so much better that you get an expert. Um, and by, I'm not plugging myself because I'm not an expert in any of those. So all I'm just saying it, it is, um, it's, it's a missed opportunity because you, you, an individual who now, who's a, who's a, I'm going to totally switch the subject here to like a cheesemonger, a cheesemonger should focus on buying the best quality cheese and, uh, and should then help get people to connect them to market their services, um, and their products. Um, so they can get what they do which is buying the best quality cheese out to the marketplace. Yeah. So big picture, I think if, if you're walking away from this, just be thinking about what you need and then go find, you know, outsource it to somebody who's already an expert in that. Um, yeah. Let's talk retail for a second. Then I, we kind of have a lot, but 
you know, you mentioned uh, this, this one freaked me out a little bit that major retailers are setting up Wi-Fi sensors that can actually track your position by picking up your smartphone's Wi-Fi signal. So they know how you're moving through their store, where you're stopping and looking at stuff and where you're just moving along, which is kind of creepy. And it makes me want to turn off my Wi-Fi on my phone. But it seems like that's something big chains can afford to do. And, you know, retailers with a lot of money to spend. What about like smaller stores, you know, like the independent bike shop or coffee shop? Like what can they do to learn more about their customers? Yeah, so so like this notion of um, beacon. Yeah, so the, I agree that is on the mainstream, and it's a scale issue. So there's like so there's two types of things that are going on. In the, well, there's a few different types of things that are going on in the mainstream. But just to answer your question, it is becoming more and more affordable to be able to understand your your customers. And it really, I would only invest in any kind of technology if you're going to do something with it. So you can get a beacon. And a beacon, what will it do is, you know, um, you, you can go as crazy as if somebody's walking in front of your location, there's a reason why Starbucks and McDonald's give away Wi-Fi for free. It's because they want to actually track store traffic. The number of people who walk by their store come in and the number of people who don't um, come into their store. And so they start creating these algorithms to say, okay, I'm going to open up my next door location because the the average number of people have walked, you know, the traffic yields X amount of customers. So that's how they determine, believe it or not, uh, one of the inputs is, is opening new stores. Once they're in the store, they, you know, they use a rewards program. They use, um, uh, you know, once you connect to Wi-Fi, believe it or not, you're accepting their terms and conditions. They're connected uh, to, if it's, a, if it's allowed, you know, the freaky part is that a lot of these big, big guys are, are now allowing, I'm saying big guys like um, Google and Facebook, you to connect to your profile. So they'll know what you shop, what you did, uh, what you looked at, the browser advertising that's, that's come to you to give you more relevant type of targeting. I mean, that's, that's where we're going, which is crazy. But that's what's happening with the, the, big, the big guys. All right. Well, if that's, guys, yeah, if that's I, level 10 stuff, let's talk like what's level two yeah. stuff that the small guys can do. <laughs> Yeah, the sm- small guys, if you're looking at like um, <laughs> uh, beacons um, in your store, and it's not, not expensive. So that will monitor who's got Wi-Fi, um, how often somebody's coming to your store. I would say that's more relevant to the high-volume locations like coffee shops and sandwich shops. Um, uh, and, and the second part of that is I would say loyalty. Like there is now um, – loyalty used to be for the big boys, the big – you know, the – the banks and the airlines loyalty now has become much, much cheaper to get access to companies like level up or belly. And there's a whole host of them and it costs like 50, 60 bucks a month or a hundred bucks a month. And you can get individuals to become part of your, part of your loyalty program. So even though you're the phase three <coughs> bike shop owner that has maybe one location versus, um, a cop shop who has 10, you can now start tracking the individuals who's come to your location, how often they've come, what day, what time of the day they've come. Sorry, let me drink water here. Yeah, well, while you're doing that, I'll fill in. I level up. I'm pretty sure that's what they use at the, there's a local, you know, like little kind of fast casual Mexican chain here called Barberitos. And I'm pretty sure that's what I scan every time I go. So yeah, like they know when I go and they know that it's pretty much always on kids eat free day so I can feed my kids for free. Um, and then you, you earn rewards. So like every 10th time we get a free cheese dip or something like that. But yeah, like I had no idea that was so cheap. I mean, that's something pretty much any small shop could do. And I would say, especially within, um, specialized retail. So I think, you know, if you're a bike shop owner, um, you should definitely, because the person who is, uh, you know, the one time customer who comes in and goes, is totally different than a person who's going to come and buy various different components. And th- that's what you want to reward, right? It's, those are more valuable because they're going to come in and buy more high margin products and high value products. And so you want to a, reward them, but know what they're buying and track what they're buying in the, in the, in the, the burrito example. Uh, you know, there's a feature within level up that they'll know they'll track that, you know, you're coming in on every Tuesday and you're ordering the same thing on a Tuesday and it's 11, 11 o'clock. 
um, when you come and order that burrito with a side salad. What they'll try to do is, why don't you come on a Wednesday and I'll give you a free side soup um, because they want to shift you to come to their location more often. It has the ability to do that. So to me, uh, these type of tools, cheap, um, and we're not talking about installing beacons and sensors and all of that malarkey. It's it's really understanding your customer and um, talking to them, giving some relevant offers um, to them. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the uh, you know the Vic card for Harris Teeter. Pretty much every grocery chain now has some kind of rewards card where you get discounts, so they can track what you're buying, which helps them with you know inventory management, but also predicting what works and what doesn't where there's interest where there isn't um it, yeah there's definitely like the level up and there's other programs for the smaller business so what is what's the equivalent of that for a brand and i'll use wolf tooth again as an example right so let's see like how could they track who's buying what when they're not directly at the retail level to track that stuff so so um if you're a b2b so if, if they're selling it to the public general public that's much easier to track if you're selling it if you're like the two main markets are direct to consumer or or the you're a reseller or selling it to b2b on the b2b size it's easier to track because you'll have few customers buying more of your goods to resell right so you'll know who they are and there's there's a lot less of them and you should um it's it's old school stuff you should track who they are um and there's tools like on salesforce and others that you one should enter and use you're never small to use uh, a CRM tool to help you track customers like you're not. I know customer, I know businesses who are online uh, like Wolf's Tooth who uh, use Salesforce to track the whole customer journey all the way to the email, right? So they've, they've uh, and they're Salesforce-like tools. You don't have to use Salesforce. That's just an example of a customer who comes in they buy a product, what was the, the basket size, when was the last purchase, all the way down to they haven't been here for the last six months, I should send out an email, and that's linked into like MailChimp and whatnot. It's all automated. Like yeah. it's not something, if, and so so somebody like Wolfstooth, again, you go to an expert, you call up Salesforce, they'll, they'll, they'll walk you through this for free. They'll tell you, okay, what they could do, and just take time to compare two or three um, type of products like CRM and pick one that's not as not expensive. Like, you know, email Mailchimp on a subscription or constant contact has now started to become more and more expensive than it used to be. And there's now there's new upstarts that are a lot cheaper, but just as effective, if not more. Uh, whether it's Urban Airship and there's a whole sub, host of others, but focus on the business. Try to find somebody um, to help you. Just going back to what we talked about before, but CRM is important. Um, to help you guide your customer lifetime value. It doesn't matter how small you are. It's, you know, whether you're a big guy or a small guy, everybody needs to understand um, your customers. If you have 10, 100, 10,000, it's just a scale, scale size. It's actually easier to know your 10 customers than it is your 10,000. Um, but I would, I would invest in just doing some research and seeing which type of CRM tool is right for you how you can track it and how, how could it be linked into marketing and when it gets linked into marketing, get the expert to tell you, okay, how could I communicate and be as effective as I can? All right. All right. This is actually, it's funny because the next question was about communication. So I want to talk about the way we communicate and I'm thinking about this from the perspective of being a media outlet and running bike rumor, but this could apply to any brand that's putting out content either on their own blog or social. So, what should we be doing to interpret readers' responses to the content that can inform our business decisions? And you know, maybe this is different based on our goals. Like my goal is to increase readership on my site. A brand's goal might be to increase direct sales or brand authority. But like we're putting all this out there. What do we do to either interpret reader response or solicit reader response? Oh, that's a really good question. So for me, uh, I... It's hard to answer on a, on a broad scale, but I'll try to be as broad as possible. So if you're, if you're trying to drive increased readership, right, it's knowing what content is the most relevant. That's like the old, the old adage, but it's so true, right? Um, the reason why Netflix is kicking everybody's butt um, right now is because they've, they've turned around and, and given such great content 
that you can actually personalize and and uh, follow, whether it's comedy shows or uh, um, documentaries that they are creating themselves. I'd say content is becoming more and more uh, in, important. So soliciting what kind of content people want is, is key, not just uh, thinking what is important and talking through in the customer's voice. This is where I go back to understanding your community, understanding the individual is so important because it can't be from the inside out. We have to look at from the outside in, right? What is important to my community? Not what you think, but what is really important to them and ask and get feedback is, is, is one. On, on, the brand, on the brand side of somebody trying to drive more product awareness and, and more sales, I would again say it's really about engaging your community and your um, within context, right? So, if if there are community events going on, if there if there's um, whether charity functions, how can you have your brand intercept, be part of that conversation? Because as a brand, when you're a small or niche player, you have to, in my opinion, leverage other people's voices or communities to get your brand out there. So if, if somebody has a closed, what I call a closed community, if they, they already have a charity event or a community, you know, 50, 50 year anniversary event, how can you have your brand be part of that dialogue, whether it's social, online, or, or physically as part of it? Uh, because that's how you'll get your brand out in a cost-effective way, but in a relevant way that um, makes sense. You, you can't, don't just do it for any kind of charity, do it that is relevant to, to what you mean to the, to the customer. Um, so that's why it's important to understand your community. And he, people are such navel gazers the, in this world that, you know, everybody is, that, that it's so important just to take the time and understand and get feedback what the customer really, really wants, whether it's the individual or the community, and, and speak um, contextually or in more relevance. Because... Millennials want that hands down. Uh, you know, they, they don't have no time for out of context stuff anymore. Like, just there, people don't have enough capacity to get bombarded with stuff that isn't in context. Right. Yeah, it's good. I like the, the context side of it. So, it's funny. You're almost like anticipating some of my next topics because you're just talking about like the meaning. But I'm trying to think ahead. Like, what's next? I feel like. We risk losing real true discovery and finding new stuff anymore when everything is so personalized and curated and created around our likes because of all this technology. So I feel like maybe being able to surprise and delight somebody is phase four, like real, creating real delight and meaning for people. Yeah, so I, I, I think that that's phase three, actually, because I think the phase three is that when somebody understands the customer really well. You start marketing to them, giving them context. That's like phase two. And then for me, it's you anticipate, you know the customer so well that um, you give the extra extra something. I'm not saying come here tomorrow and buy, uh, you know, two burritos and get a free soup. I'm talking about come and, buy, come and buy the two burritos. And you don't tell them what the free soup and you give them a free soup. To me, the next, um, the war, especially in retail, as we think about it, Surprising delight and in loyalty is is going to be um, a competitive advantage to anybody. That you know, when when you find something that you get for an additional um, item, so people are used to now. I go to loyalty. I, I go to Starbucks and I spend X amount of dollars and I get something for free. That's phase two, right? Phase three is going to be, hey, you know, um, you tell your your associate that. If you see somebody with a rewards program who's spent a lot of money in a short period of time, yes, they're getting the rewards for free, but give them something extra at that moment in time. That's phase three. That is where all of a sudden the, the credibility of the brand and the customer um, is going to become such a glue that's going to drive them to a do more of what you want them to do because you're being genuine about it. But again, it just goes back to you, you got to know your customers. You have to be genuine, but you have to think about how you would surprise and delight without just doing it for the sake of doing it, right? You can't just surprise and delight um, because you feel like it's that that doesn't that doesn't bode well. You got to you got to tie it into some some kind of behavior that you want to surprise and delight for. You want to do it on a behavior that's rewarding for the customer and for you. All right, makes sense. Well. 
That was kind of all the questions I had. Is there anything like we didn't talk about that you think is important for brands and retailers to understand when it comes to creating this new, you know, local meaningful experience for people? Yeah, I, I mean, the only thing I could say is, and this is just like, this is a, I mean, we talk about a lot of philosophy, but a lot of things that you could put into practice. But I would really say is, you know, just be fearless and try. Because the only way you will know if it's sticking and not is just trying. And a lot of, um, you know, one thing I've learned in business, running my own business and then working for big companies is somebody, people have to try and try more. And it's okay to make mistakes. I think now in this day and age, it's okay to make mistakes. Um, and yeah, you know, people are afraid that in social media, you're going to get one bad review or somebody's going to talk poorly on Facebook about it, but that's okay. Like it really is positioning of your product becoming better and better. Um, it, the only way you can do it is by making mistakes. The only way you're going to get to know your customers um, and your community is by trying. And it's, it's okay. It really is okay to make mistakes. And, and I would say fail fast and learn as quick as you can. So you could, you can become as local uh, as possible. Yeah. Well, and handle it well when you do mess up, right? Like be self-effacing, <laughs> own up to it. Don't try and <laughs> just yell louder. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. That's good. Good shout out. Awesome. Well, Alex, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. That was great. Thanks for the opportunity. For me, the biggest takeaway is that we all need to look at the people we serve and figure out how we can localize our products and services to meet their needs. What can we do to sync our offers with their distinct wants and needs so that we become part of the conversation? Not any conversation, their conversation, and part of their community. I'd like to present another way of thinking of influencers too. There's a lot of buzz around using social media stars to talk about your products, but don't forget about that last mile. Your employees and contractors are the face of your brand too, often at that last moment before the purchase decision is made. How can you train them to be influencers? Just a real quick piece of housekeeping. I've moved all of the social over to at Tyler Benedict to help consolidate things a little bit. So if you want to see what's going on with the Build Cycle podcast and more of my content strategy, marketing and other things, plus a little random, you know, Ninja Warrior stuff and other fun things, head over to at Tyler Benedict on social. And for the show notes to this episode, go to tylerbenedict.com slash podcast, where you'll find links to some of the things we discussed in this episode and ways to get in touch with my guest. And be sure to subscribe and leave a comment. But more than anything, can you share this with a friend? I need you to be my influencers. Thanks. Here's hoping you're making the right connections and enjoying that local motion. Till next time, keep building. <laughs>